Chapter 1. Burning Bushes The train tracks run across the road from our house. Three or four times a day the train rumbles by, a flash of color blazing through the spindly birches that line our driveway. If it's the passenger train, it flies by so quickly you hardly have time to look up. But if it's the cargo train, you can feel it coming before you see it. It lumbers steadily down the track, sending tremors along the earth. When the conductor blows the whistle, it cries a forlorn warning. I will not stop. When we moved into our house three years ago, I trembled every time I heard that train. Even the house felt its thunder. I was startled by the way the floorboards and window frames seemed to vibrate in its wake. The first time I heard it, I grabbed our dog Pablo and clutched him tight, afraid we might be under some sort of attack. In fact, when we first moved into our house, I was startled by nearly everything. Our first place had been a tiny, pine-laden apartment over our landlord's garage. We moved in when we first got married, and I felt comfort in seeing the constant influx of cars coming and going up the driveway, knowing that someone would always be around if I needed help. But in our new house, a foreclosure that we had mortgaged with a miraculously low interest rate, the windows were cracked and the air always smelled oddly pungent. It made me feel alone and exposed. An uncomfortable vulnerability settled in my bones. The first night, Ethan and I slept there. We laid flat on our backs for a long time, listening to the new night noises. The darkness masked the disappointment on my face, but it couldn't cover up the tears in my voice. This doesn't feel like home, I murmured. Not yet, Ethan said but it will soon. He turned over and I could hear his breathing get slow and heavy. Alone with my thoughts, I turned to stare out the curtainless windows. The window nearest me was broken. Someone had tried to repair it with a long strand of wrinkled packing tape. I thought about our mortgage and the 30 years of debt we had accrued for this. I let myself cry, though just a little, and it gave me a glimmer of satisfaction, the way self-pity sometimes does. But it wasn't just the mortgage that scared me about the house. The rooms were full of strange sounds. When the hot water heater kicked on, it crackled and popped mysteriously in the basement. The ice maker rattled when it dropped its cubes into the bucket below, and I was leery of the moldy smell that emanated from the closets. There were two other houses on our lane, and we didn't know our neighbors. They drove in at all hours of the night, waking us up with their headlights and causing me to sit up in a panic. There was no familiarity to any of it. I often called Ethan when I was home alone to describe the mysterious sounds or smells I noticed and to ask whether he knew their origins. In truth, I wasn't only afraid of the house and its unfamiliarity. Somehow, without my acknowledgement or approval, Fear had made its way into every crevice of my brain, my body, and my life. I was anxious all the time and in a hundred different ways. The move into this barren foreclosure just made me feel especially susceptible to those fears. Peaceful moments were always tainted with poisonous worry. There was a constant and uncomfortable wiggling down deep in my gut, a latent terror that today would be the day that something bad would happen. That anxiety twisted my nerves into tight springs. The daily passing of the train was enough to make them uncoil, causing an unpleasant, visceral shudder. Surely my fears were not rational. 
It was not normal that a freight train would cause my heart to palpitate. It was not okay that I woke each morning wondering if my husband would get in a terrible accident or if my school at the time would be the next tragic headline. It was not healthy that I would fall asleep at night with visions from the nightly news flashing in my mind. Bombings and disease and nose-diving planes all performing a dangerous dance across my closed eyelids. I had fallen into a routine of worry that made my days feel cumbersome, sickening, long. I looked free on the outside. To anyone peering in at my life, I imagine nothing appeared to be too terribly wrong. But inwardly, I was confined and defined by my fears. Does this sound familiar to you? The Anxiety and Depression Association of America recorded in 2022 that nearly 20% of the U.S. adult population have an anxiety disorder. That's one in five people. In this age of fast media and bad news and self-sufficiency, and where trauma affects an increasingly large number of people, it's not surprising that worry has become commonplace and even expected. In speaking with friends, especially other women, I've found that I'm not the only one who's laying awake at night, imagining worst-case scenarios. We have, somewhere along the way, become wired to believe that something bad is always on the brink of happening. Rationalization and optimism are not helpful tools. When a mind is in fight, flight, or freeze mode, it can't just stop worrying. Those who experience everyday anxiety live in a constant state of hypervigilance, and over a time, it can seriously affect our relationships, decisions, and our physical health. Plus, it makes it nearly impossible to experience peace or joy as God intended for us. So, what hope is there for getting out of this cycle? Is there hope? Yes. This is me saying a huge, resounding, Yes. I know because I've lived it. I used to be held totally captive to fear, and now I'm not. What happened in between? God stepped in and he said, let's go. And we went. Was the journey straight or easy? Heck no. Do I still experience anxiety sometimes? I sure do. But I'm living with a clarity of mind and peace that the girl in the story above never even imagined was possible. And I believe that same clarity and peace is available to you because we serve a God who lends us his very own spirit. And that spirit is not one of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. That's from 2 Timothy. This is a story about listening for God, getting acquainted with his spirit, and how learning to let it dwell inside of me set me free from that seemingly never-ending cycle of fear. And I hope that that is a cycle that you will be able to get free from as well. God is in the freeing business. In the book of Exodus, God directly addresses the captivity of his people, the Israelites. They'd been slaves in Egypt for many years, and while theirs is a story of physical liberation— Anyone experiencing captivity of any kind can use it to better understand God's character and how he loves, dwells with, and saves his people. Throughout this book, we'll come back to the Israelites and their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land to see what it means for our own journey, too. Let's start here. 
One day, God appears to a man named Moses while he's out tending his flock of sheep. He shows up in a burning bush, and as Moses approaches, he reveals himself to be God. He's got a plan to rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians, and he's going to use Moses to help him do it. But before he dives into explaining the offensive play, God takes the time to prove to Moses that he cares about the suffering that the Israelites have endured so far. He says that he had observed the misery of his people. The word observed here indicates that God had not just watched from a distance, but had been an actual witness present among his people. He also says that he had heard them crying out because of their oppressors. In other words, their cries to him were not in vain. They had, in fact, reached his ears. And he also says that he knew about their sufferings. The word know here suggests that God felt compassionate and tender toward them, like a father soothing a hurting child and whispering, there, there, I know, into their ears. Why does God lead with that? In revealing that he has seen, heard, and known about the Israelites' suffering, he not only proves that he is an omniscient God, but also that he's a loving one. He has cared to see. He has bothered to listen. He has known the misery it has caused. I don't know about you, but I often doubt God on these three points, especially when I'm suffering. God shows here that he clearly understands the way our human hearts operate. Maybe God also knows that we won't go anywhere with him until we trust him first. I think he just knew that Moses would need to be totally reliant on him before he was able to do what God asked him next. Come, the Lord said to Moses as he stood barefoot and trembling before the burning bush. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I can almost see Moses wringing his hands, beads of sweat condensing across the bridge of his nose. He had never been much of a public speaker. Oh, my Lord, he said, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. But God doesn't expect Moses to figure out how to get free on his own accord. Who has made man's mouth, he said to Moses. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. It's as if he's saying, Well, duh, Moses, I know you can't do it alone. That's why I'm meeting you here in this burning bush. So this is where our journey begins. We need a burning bush moment. We need an interaction with God where he acknowledges our suffering and we acknowledge that we need him to save us from it. We need to listen to what he asks of us next and not be surprised if it seems unconventional or even undesirable. And we need to trust him just enough to say, okay, I'm scared as all get out, but I will do what you say as long as you come with me. No need to wait for God to combust your shrubs. Today, make time to talk with him. You've lived with anxiety for too long, and now it's time to rattle some cages.